This episode of Weed Like a Word was recorded via social media during lockdown conditions in the 2020 coronavirus epidemic. Consequently, the sound quality is a bit ropey at times, and so indeed is the quality of the presenters. Nevertheless, enjoy the show. We'd like a word about writing across genres or writing something that's hard to pin down into one genre. You're listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters, and me, Stephen Colgan. And our guest is Stephanie Scott, and her debut, What's Left of Me is Yours. When there's been a lot of excitement about this, I'll read what it says on the back a gripping debut set in modern day Tokyo inspired by a true crime uh, about a young woman's search for the truth about her mother's life and her murder. And it's kind of set in the midst of this kind of, maybe not secret, but kind of slightly behind the scenes industry, which is about breaking up marriages where somebody's hired by one part of a marriage to, to seduce the other to gain advantage in divorce proceedings. But um, I suppose, Stephanie, we mentioned genre at the start what genre is this or what genre hello and um, well thank you very much for having me on today uh i would i would say that the novel is quite determinedly cross genre and i'm quite lucky that my publishers both in the uk and and the states were happy to embrace that i know not a lot of people would be so um i'm very fortunate really to be with um double day and wnn um and i think the novel really it does resist categorization. Uh, I guess people have put it in into the category of literary because that is one of the broadest and most flexible of categories. Um, but it's it has a bit of it has something for everyone in it in that it's a a murder, it's a coming of age, it's a questioning of identity, it's a love story. And I really wanted to, I wanted that variety when I was writing it. And, and I wanted a book that really encapsulated all of the different things that interest me. And I was very, very keen to focus on writing a love story and examining love in all of its forms. But I was also very intrigued by this murder which occurred in 2010, which inspired the novel. And so I really just tried to combine all of the things I love in one book. Where do you find it in the shop? That's the question, isn't it? Where do you find it in the bookshop? I think you would find, well, it'd be really lovely to visit bookstores. I know they're open now, but um, my novel came out when they were all shut. Um, so that's a very good question. I would say you would put it in literary, you would put it in current fiction, contemporary fiction. Uh, it's not, a, you know, it's it's women's fiction as well. It's book club. It's got an element of crime, but I guess if you had to put it in a box, it would be literary contemporary fiction. I remember a few years ago when Douglas Adams brought out the first Dirk Gently novel, um, they made a big thing on the, on the end papers about the fact it was the first ever murder mystery, thriller, ghost story, science fiction, historical, romance, something about it. The, the list went on in about 20 genres. But of course, yeah. being Douglas Adams, it still ended up in science fiction or humour. And I just wondered, you know, with this, it's mostly a love story, even though it's a bit of a tragic love story, but, it's, it, but it wouldn't sit next to the Mills and Boons. I suppose it's, <laughs> one of my friends called it romantic noir. <laughs> oh, I like oh, that. Romantic, I like that. 
Because you see, one of the yeah, bits that I like best in it was was kind of the mother daughter thing. So there's something then that I have no insight into myself. But uh, there's a bit in um, about a hundred pages in, or something like that, and there's a chapter called Razorfish, and it's it says a woman is born with all the children she will ever carry, all those tiny souls like shells embedded in the coral of her womb, and it talks about uh, Rena, the character, and uh, she's sitting there in the hospital. Uh, She's waiting for a scan, I think. And just the sensation that talks about it says, you know, she'd lie awake in the night waiting for the shift and drop of liquid in her belly, the pull of currents in a pool. But soon she was awakened by a curl within her, like the crest of a wave and suddenly a bump in her stomach. You, she thought, kicking, tap, tap, tapping your way out of me. And you talk a bit more about that. And it seems just really lovely and and intimate and uh, and also like about you know, the world, humanity encapsulated in it. And I suppose the reason why it's called Razorfish later on, when, when uh, she's nearer giving birth, she, it's like uh, she's telling the baby to stop, to wait. But the force within her was relentless and it took over her whole body and deepened the pain like a razorfish shooting down, down through the sand of her skin. I'm coming, it said, I'm coming. And Rena wondered how such a small thing, unshelled, could be so unafraid. And I thought, I, was, I found it very moving. And so then when you're talking about it being romantic noir, that is a good description. But I was thinking it was much more a mother-daughter sort of a thing. You're right. It is also very much a mother-daughter narrative. And um, and I, I love the way that you you see how that scene ripples out to all of humanity. I love microcosms. I'm obsessed with them. So um, there are lots of them embedded within the book. But this mother-daughter relationship was also very central when I was writing. And my mother is the most important person in my life. Um, my father would resent this deeply when I say it, particularly in public. But um, but it's true. <laughs> so um, my husband resents it too. But you know, but I'm very very close to my mother, and I'm very interested in you know, the bond between mothers and children, particularly that biological bond that starts very, very early. And for Sumiko, you know, when she, she grows up never really knowing how her mother truly died. And, um, you know, her mother, Rena, dies when Sumiko is a child. And so she's continually trying to fill this void of absence. And I was quite interested in the the physical echoes that would remain or that had occurred and were perhaps forgotten for the benefit of the listeners the book sort of weaves two particular time zones doesn't it because we're we're back in the time of her mother and the events leading up to her mother's death or there's no spoilers though we've already said this and it says so on the cover so we're not spoiling anything but there's the story years later of the daughter unraveling that story so it's set across two time zones you've got the connection between the two of them there as well haven't you yes absolutely that's yeah, quite interesting clever. then we know the mother is dead and the child knows she's dead but there's a whole elaborate lie built up about how she died and it's the investigation into first of all to find out that there was anything to find out in the first place and then to try and find out exactly what went on is kind of interesting and maybe difficult to maintain suspense and in that way when i guess you already know the essential part like we knew we knew she was murdered but i found it really compelling thank um, you did you feel on any under any pressure going back to the genre stuff from I don't know your agent or editors or people you consulted with along the way to bring out one particular aspect to make it more clearly one thing or another? Uh, that's a really good question. I think I had 
when I when I sent the book out to agents, I got several offers. And what was interesting about that time was that everybody wanted to do different things with the novel and you know they wanted to push it in all kinds of directions you know there was someone who wanted to make it very literary and short and another person who wanted to push it right into psychological thriller um and i was very lucky with my agent anthony harwood in that he just embraced the multi-genre nature of it and got it good agent good agent yeah, no, he, he was amazing and, and was willing to support me. <laughs> um, and he really understood the book and, and loved the book. And he sent me the sweetest email when he sent it out saying, you know, whatever happens, I'm a thousand percent behind you in this novel. And it really meant a lot to me. Um, so, yes, that That's was interesting very interesting. I suppose people wonder what agents do apart from take a percentage. But that sounds, <laughs> assuming they sell anything, but that sounds like that relationship with you and Anthony Harwood was was really important in a, in a much bigger way. Oh yes, hugely so. I mean his um the fact that he we shared a vision for the book was really really important particularly because I had so many different voices saying we love it but we'd like to do this. It was really great to have someone on my side who understood it and and also when you know when we went out to publishers um you know it was a, a preempt in the states which happened very quickly and then it sold um in the uk and europe but there was there was feedback there as well where they kept trying to box it and i think this is what makes me so grateful to have the publishers i do have because they were really quite visionary in their acceptance of it being many things you know why can't why can't we write fiction that is literary and commercial that uh, applies to a whole range of subjects and interests and that draws in all different kinds of groups of people i mean isn't that the literature we all want to read it's certainly the literature i want to read um and so i was quite surprised when there was this boxing resistance but um but very grateful to have gotten through it <laughs> It's very refreshing to hear because um, there's been quite a lot of criticism from all different directions over the last couple of years that the publishing industry has become very safe, that, you know, they will either just go for the celebrity book, even if the celebrity can't write, they know the person's name will sell the book, or to stick within very tightly defined genres. The minute something's successful, they're instantly looking for another 10 things that are similar to the thing that's been successful. And, and it's very difficult to put something out there that's new or different or a little bit uncomfortable or you don't quite you haven't quite got your balance trying to figure out what it is so this is really refreshing really refreshing to hear it sounds as if the I, industry is finally getting coming back again well i hope i really hope so because as you say it, it it does tend to be quite retrospective <laughs> and mm. that's not necessarily very creative or innovative um and one of the things when my uk editor bought it um in her in her email to my agent, she said, um, I love this book and I've never read anything like it. And I just thought, thank you, God. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's not a bad yeah. thing, people. That's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. Exactly. But not, not, everyone, not everyone shared her view. So. <laughs> no, I can believe it. I can believe it. You've had this problem, Steve, I think, because you write comedy. Yeah. Fine. And it's, and it's also a little bit literary as well. I mean, I, I do spend a lot of time constructing the sentences, you know, um, trying to write good English prose as well as making it funny. And, and 
And, you know, my agent stuck by me again, um, but just couldn't make the sale because people were saying, well, if you do this and turn it more into a murder mystery and take out all the comedy, I might be able to sell it. Or if you do this and do that. And I just wasn't prepared to because I wanted to produce... You know, I, I look at something like P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse is literary and funny. You can be both, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. We're writers. Mm. Why mm. can't we be literary and many other things? Surely yes. multifaceted fiction is what we're all driving towards. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just like people. But then you see, where does it go on the shelf? You have to have a shelf. I'm, I don't, yeah. I'm hedging my bets by, so mine, uh, Blackwater Town, I'm describing it as, historical crime thriller and that may end up not pleasing any bookseller but what can i what can you do yeah but yours is, yours has got a romance story in it as well yeah okay a historical crime thriller romance that's what it is I've you only need an alien invasion in the middle mate you've got the set yeah oh, God. <laughs> no. well look okay something really distinctive then about what's left of me is yours is the setting so it's in japan in contemporary japan yeah. and it's this I, I didn't know about this at all. It's this special business about breaking up marriages. So uh, what do you call them? How do you say the name? It's called Wakare Saseya. So there are Wakare Saseya agents who are marriage breakup agents or splitter uppers. Now, this is different. Sometimes if in, in, in Britain and America and various places, you might have people who, if you think your spouse is being unfaithful, you could send like an agent provocateur to see if they go for it and say, ha ha, I, I suspected all along. But this is different. This is for people who are not at all unfaithful, but you just want rid of them. So you want to entrap them to do something that they wouldn't normally do. And then you, how does it all work? Well, you're quite right, actually, that um, one of their roles is the, the more traditional, dare I say, um, stakeout job where you fear your spouse is having an affair and you hire, you know, an agent to, to check up on them and see. I mean, many of these agents are attached to private detective offices. So that is, they, they do many, many things. Actually, there are, there are many, many relationship services that they offer. But also, because there is an at-fault divorce system, um, if you want a greater portion of your financial assets or custody of your children and the divorce is, is difficult, as many are, and you know, it's not mutually agreed and one of the spouses doesn't consent, you can, you can use this uh, form of seduction to persuade them into giving you what you want in a divorce but also I mean it there's an emotional aspect as well which I suppose enables people to avoid confrontation uh, in the short term or at least that crucible of confrontation that can occur when you're still living together in a marriage in that if your partner has fallen in love with someone else he or she is more likely to allow you to separate from them and and feel differently about it of course it, it doesn't work out in the long term because the agent abandons them and uh there's much rage but um but it's quite there's quite there's there is quite, a quite an understatement there <laughs> much rage <laughs> so basically you say hey sucker i found somebody else and they say oh okay well if you must leave twist my arm twist my arm and then you go hey new lover and they go so you divorced now yes we can live together it's like oh yeah i was stringing you along for money bye well, I, I, you know, I think actually some of the agents don't even, they don't necessarily even provide that amount of closure. They just go dark and cut off their phones and rotate to another part of Tokyo. 
this is like a, this is a normal business. It is. I mean, it, it is. It is absolutely, and it, it's very much like honey trapping, you know, that exists uh, all around the world. And by necessity, of course, it's covert. But yes, it does very much exist, and and um, and it's been growing. You know, I think it started in Japan around in around 1992, and it's it's really only grown since then. The murder that inspired my novel did shine a, an unwanted light onto the industry, uh, but I, they seem to have recovered from that now. It, it was a decade ago. Well, I did. Um, I did speak to a friend of mine about this who knew, knows a little bit about it, and I, I again, yeah, there's a lot of agencies that are involved in this thing, but it's it's not just divorces, is it? Because you've got such an honour-based society in Japan that they'll also use it so that someone shames them. You you make someone do something to shame themselves to bring shame on their company or their family, to force them out of jobs or to stop them getting a promotion. It's, it's, it's really quite insidious. It's, it's quite frightening. Yes, it is. Exactly. There are many, many, many different, different uses for it. And it's quite, it's quite interesting because it all seems to revolve around confrontation. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know how many of us love confrontation, frankly. It does seem to be, well, it's quite an extreme route to take to avoid it to avoid confrontation to save face i mean we do it all the time in you know societies all around the world but it is quite it is quite interesting and you're quite right it can be used to force people out of jobs or families you know they can also if um if a young woman is having an affair with a married man and she wants to marry him she can hire a worker to break up that marriage um which is quite which is this horrible. is horrible really this is horrible, really horrible. it is yeah <laughs> I, I also read that it tells you something about men and women as well because apparently the success rate is much higher when the target's a man and it's a woman who's who's basically trying to make him right. do something he shouldn't do blokes are far more likely to go for the for the woman showing them attention than a woman to go for a man showing her attention i've heard the same thing actually yeah. that you know the men will not question when this beautiful woman approaches them in a bar, they won't question why she's No, that's weird. right, that's right. Um, but it was it's all about egos. Mm. It is. And it's one of the cha- was one of the challenges with writing the novel because obviously my target is a woman. And, and so she, she resists and she is suspicious, um, but she's also you know, surprised and naive her husband in other isn't very, Her husband isn't very nice. And this nice yeah. man, it's more like she meets a nice man. Yeah. And this could be a whole new life for her. So yes. people talk about, say, private detectives and all that delving into sleaze, but I suppose the sleaze is already happening and they're spying on it. But these people are provoking infidelity where none exists in the first place. They're not even, oh, they've done it before, they'll do it again. It's somebody completely innocent, completely blameless, and then you lure them into it and then clobber them for it. And the point is the person has to transgress. That's their outer, isn't it? Well, you know, yeah, I did this, but they didn't have to say yes. Do you not declare any of this in court? As in, well, on the one hand, she shagged this bloke, but on the other hand, these people set up a whole system of entrapment. Is that not relevant in proceedings or is it secret and that's fine? Well, it's very, very few divorce cases actually go to court. You know, in, in Japan, you can have mutually agreed divorces where you can go down to your local ward office and you can both sign a divorce form and you agree the terms, you agree who gets custody of the children and you both sign it and you're divorced. It's actually a very um, 
fast and far more enlightened system than, than even our British one in the UK today. Um, but there's also mediation, which is another way that you can get divorced in Japan. And very, very few cases make it to litigation. So, I mean, as I would see it, they would probably not want this business to come to light. So it's really more about persuading your partner that um, you have the upper hand. And, you know, so they won't take it to court. When you were at school, not knowing what you want to do with your life, your careers teacher said, have you considered being a marriage breaker up here? I mean, you're quite a charmer. <laughs> you know, a bit flighty. You know, there are all these happy marriages, or, well, maybe not happy ones, but there are all these people whose lives you could ruin. That's the, the job. Do, do people not retaliate? If I was doing that job, I would be scared that somebody would be coming to kill me. Well, I'm sure they do. I mean, I think this is the this is the interesting thing. People are people, and you know, the novel is very much about humanity and what drives us and how we react to different things and the things that we do when we're put in in extreme situations or when our buttons are pushed in concert. I'm sure they do. I think people are unpredictable, but in many ways they are also predictable. And so the anger that comes with this is very, very understandable. And you know, sometimes you've said that sometimes the victims are you know blameless but i mean some of them will in in cases i've read about have had affairs before um you know which is what has given their spouse the idea that this could work so it's i'm very interested in that as well in the idea of who is to blame and who is guilty throughout the book that's very much something i play with continually guilt and blame on that note uh, we're coming to the end of part one of stephanie scott and we'd like a word coming up in part two We'll be hearing a bit about your background and you're from Singapore, about Malaya, World War II, all sorts of interesting things like that coming up in part two.